to be made. When you turned from your sins to the Lord, you were automatically, instantly, invisibly, and passively, passively made a member of the universal church. So when you became a Christian, when you were born again, when you received the spirit of adoption, you were automatically, instantly, invisibly, and passively made a member of the universal church. But local church membership is entirely different. It is not automatic. It is not instant. It is not invisible. It is not passive. And yet, virtually every command given to the church in the New Testament is given to the local and not the universal church. We're to love each other, live in harmony with each other, greet one another, comfort one another. Things that cannot be done in the universal church can only be done with concrete people. And so, what the elders are proposing at the, as the culmination of this series is as a better way for us to be faithful to Scripture, as a better way for us to live out the commands of Christ, as a better way for us to function as a church, to, to create a list that helps identify who the members of Martinsdale Community Church are. And we have many such partial lists. None of them are complete. None of them are very accurate. We have the mailboxes. We have the name tags. We have the directory. We have the photo directory. We have the prayer list. And yet, if we ask, who are we? Who is the church? Which, which one of those lists would function? And we've been seeing more and more a need for us to be self-aware. That, that's the concept, self-aware, that we know who we are so that we can function in unity, faithfully. And we understand that this may be a new concept for some, and so we've given six weeks to explaining both its biblical foundation as something laid out in Scripture and its biblical importance. And so in our first week, I tried to show this is in the Bible. Now, the mechanism for self-awareness, whether, whether it's a list, whether it's a church covenant, However that's done, the scriptures leave up to us, but what we saw was clearly self-awareness, a knowledge of who the body is by both the body and its leadership is just bleeding from the pages of the New Testament. As early as Acts 2, they're added to their number. Widows' lists are made to help organize and function for the purposes of ministry. And then we explained, well, why is that important? Because I need to know who I'm committed to. I need to know who my body is. I need to know who my family is if I'm going to treat them as a family and a body. And then Al Ostrander gave the perspective of, of the leader's responsibility for the flock. We're going to give an account for the sheep entrusted to our care, not to all Christians everywhere, but the leaders of this church will give an account for those entrusted to our care, which demands the knowledge, who are they? And then last week, Pastor Daniel gave a hard, I think an excellent job, um, the, the responsibility of the flock to the leaders and the, and the often ignored biblical commands of honoring the leaders in the church, obeying the leaders in the church. The, the scriptures are clear, just frequently left unexamined. And, and again, that, that demands a knowledge of who my leaders are. These are commands that we can't function in the universal church generally without a local church specifically. And this week, I want to sort of try to bring together some of these themes and, and answer some, some questions, the, the, the clear question, well, why then become a member of a local church? Why, why do that? Why go ahead and take that step? Why move from the comparative safety of attendance? Because we can attend and we can participate and we can give of ourselves without giving ourselves to a body. 
We can use our time and our talents and our money, and still, at the end of the day, we're the ones who call the shots. We're our own portfolio managers. We're our shepherds, and, and, and no one will tell me what to do. No one will, will, will expect anything of me. Why move from that position to one where we entrust ourselves to the church, where we publicly let everyone else know also, yes, I am a part of this body. Yes, I'm committed to you all. Well, I think part of the reason we even have to ask that question is because there are some reasons we may not want to do that. And so I want to begin by looking at some of the potential questions or objections we might have. Now, if you look through church history, over the last 2,000 years, the issue of church membership is, is, is all over church history. It's really the last 50, 60, 70 years that it's come out of vogue. Many churches today, perhaps you've gone to churches, have a robust and clear issue of membership. Even our founding documents talk about a voting roster and membership. It was all there. It just falls out of practice. Why is that? Well, I think the first question that you might ask is, well, could this be a legalistic issue? I think um, one or two people have expressed that concern. Is, is this issue of emphasizing on church membership, is that legalistic? And, and I think that the, the term legalism is an oft misunderstood term. It gets thrown about frequently, usually when people um, are, are more fearful than thoughtful. And it's sort of like in McCarthyism with the issue of communism becomes sort of, well, we certainly don't want to be legalistic. Well, nobody wants to be legalistic. But we need to define our terms. Biblically, legalism means one of two things. Um, the first meaning of legalism would be works righteousness, a belief that we merit favor with God, acceptance with God by doing things. And Paul, in the strongest possible terms in Galatians 5.4, destroys such an idea. He says to those in Galatia, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. So in his first sense, legalism, and a legalist is somebody who says, because I do things, because I keep rules, because I go to church, because I get baptized, that is why God will forgive me and accept me. Now, usually, when people say that sounds legalistic, that's not what they mean. It's the second meaning, another biblical meaning. And that is when we teach the traditions of men as if they were the commandments of God. This is what Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees was. Listen to Mark 7, verses 6 through 8. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees was that they were hypocrites. They didn't do the very thing they said. And they had this whole list of traditions that they would impose on people's consciences. And I think it's the second definition of legalism that people might mean if they ask the question, hey, is, is any given teaching legalistic? You see, what that makes clear then is, and here's your blank, something can only be legalistic if it is first unbiblical. Something can only be legalistic if it is first unbiblical. Which is one of the reasons why we've taken six weeks to argue this. We think this is in the Bible. We think this is biblical. And if something is biblical, definitionally, it can't be legalistic. Okay? So that's got to click because I think for many of us, we, we don't think in those terms, is this biblical or is this a tradition of men? 
Rather, when we see something that looks restraining, when we see something that looks like, like black and white, we live in a culture that doesn't like black and white, that the charge comes out. So it's fine to believe that all Christians should be baptized, but to insist that believers, or a particular you or you must be baptized, well, that might sound legalistic. It's not an issue of legalism. It's possible that I'm being unloving, harsh, impatient. Those those are all potential possibilities. But if we grant that baptism is called upon by the Lord for believers, insisting on someone to be baptized cannot be legalistic. So if a church teaches that you must not go to the movie theater, that could be an issue of legalism. I, I think it is. I'm not aware of scriptures that command us not to go to the movies. But the other mistake we can make, though, is, is in thinking that there is not commandments for us. The Bible has commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And now, as I ask you to open to 1 Corinthians 9, let's look at this passage where Paul talks about his evangelistic strategy, becoming all things to all people. We'll pick it up in verse 19. For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." You get, you get that. We were freed from the law of Moses, but we are not without law. We are all under the law of Christ, his rule, his commandments, that according to John 14, 15, if we love him, we will keep them. And so calling on people to keep the commandments of Christ is not legalism, it is loving. It's only because our culture has redefined love to mean unconditional acceptance, that we feel a lack of love when people call us to do things. So is church membership legalistic? Something can only be legalistic if it is first unbiblical. And that's, again, why we made the case, why we've laid it down. Examine these things. Search through these things. Ask questions. Our desire is to be of one mind, but no, no, I don't believe church membership can be an issue that's legalistic. Second question then, okay. Does this then potentially begin, does church membership begin a slippery slope? A slippery slope taking the first step that might lead to more and more and more where you get to a sort of domineering, controlling, authoritarian, fascist church. Pastor Daniel talked about how some of those churches where where the leadership is so completely in control. We call them cults. So does this then potentially begin a slippery slope in that direction? Maybe it's not all the way there, but there's this sort of fearful concern that we don't want to end up there. And again, nobody wants to end up in that situation. You see, we have a natural distrust for an authority, and it's for a good reason. Authority is frequently corrupted. We've all known abusive husbands, fathers. We've learned in many cases, especially since Vietnam, to distrust our government. And we've seen the abuses of authority at every level. And so we... (laughs) We distrust authority because of its corruptibility, because of its imperfection. And so there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction, again, this desire to move away from, away from entrusting myself. If I commit myself to a group and I let you all know that I've made that commitment, I'm a little less free now, aren't I? 
I'm a little less free to do as I please. I now have responsibilities to you all that are public, that are known. Oh, positively, I also have all the benefits and all of the, all of the blessings of you all committing to me. But there is a sense in which I'm a little more free, a little more autonomous if I, if I remain silent, if I stay on the edge. But I think there's a corollary truth we need to be aware of, and that is that, yes, those in authority can be corrupted, but we have within us, as part of a sinful humanity, a sinful and inherent dislike of authority. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis 3. People, Jonathan Lehman writes, refuse to submit to authority only partly because they fear injustice and being harmed. That was the canard Satan used with Adam and Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. The serpent said, suggesting that God was trying to cheat them out of something that was rightly theirs. Really, it was their lust for self-rule that induced Adam and Eve to believe the lie. Jonathan Lehman goes on to say, this experience is universal. You will be harmed if you submit, Satan tells us, to which we gladly respond Not only that, but I won't be able to take and assert what's rightfully mine. The person is self-deceived who only suspects those at the top of the hierarchy and not those at the bottom as well. The Bible indicts both. So what is to be done? There's two ditches on either side of the road. We certainly don't want a fascist authoritarian system. We also need to be wary of our innate desire for absolute lawless freedom and autonomy. And I suggest that the response to this fear, this concern, and we've heard of churches that have gone bad, churches where you get the wrong elders in, the wrong leaders in, and and they take it down the tubes, either doctrinally or through a domineering spirit. Well, I don't think the response is ignoring Scripture. I don't think the response is taking a a sharpie and unhighlighting Hebrews 13, 17. I don't think the Lord will honor that, and I think it will just careen us off into the other direction. The response has got to be the biblical mandate of checks and balances that are in Scripture because the leaders, as well as all Christians, are called to biblical fidelity. In 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul makes it clear that an elder who persists in sin is to be rebuked publicly. That there are clear, open to everyone, biblical standards for leadership, both of holiness of life and of soundness of teaching as well as commands not to lord one's authority. So, so if, God forbid, at some point in the future, wolves arise from our midst and, 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 and unfit, unwise, and ungodly men lead this church, you all have the responsibility to, to bring that to them, and you have the authority to do it. Remember, we've talked about the issue of church discipline. It's not rest in the hands of the elders, but the body. If two or three of you agree on anything on earth, You can take it before the body. The blank here, does church membership begin a slippery slope only if the body fails in its responsibilities? See, the biblical picture that keeps us in the center of that road is we we obey the commands of God and we look up to and we, we follow our leaders and we hold them accountable to Scripture. And, and we hold them accountable to the, the, the qualifications so that when an elder stops being qualified, either by his way of life by his doctrine. The body calls them on that. Believers are called to do that. That's the, that's the biblical checks and balances. And, and again, Pastor Daniel said last week, it's just all too easy and all too convenient for many churches, and this is what I think happens in, in many churches today. The, the leadership says, we're, we're not going to give an account for you. We're not going to be responsible for you. And you don't have to do what we say, or you don't have to, you don't have to listen to us. And everyone's happy. 
except God and the Scriptures, which paint a very different picture. So, so the body has a responsibility to, to call and to check and to, to bring Scripture to the leadership in all the things that they're doing. In Acts 17, verse 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul, a, a, an apostle, a guy who writes Scripture, shows up to... Um, shows up to the Berea. Now listen to this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You got a guy who can speak for God, write for God, command as though God were commanding. Paul, Paul gives commandments. The Bereans were noble because they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so, and that pattern should be kept up. This is, this is one of the reasons why in my ABF I try to take questions from the sermon. I want to make it clear. I'm, I'm not an authority. This is the authority. I'm trying to explain what this says. I'm trying to commend what this says. But this is the authority that, which, which I'm held to, which you're held to, which the leaders, the elders are held to. And, and you ought to prayerfully Lovingly call us to fidelity to this. So does it lead a slippery slope only if the body fails in its responsibility? Only if the body lets poor and unqualified leadership run away and, and crash the ship? That's another reason why we've done a six-week series. We don't expect you to take our word on, hey, we've got this great new idea on membership. Just trust us. No, we feel compelled to argue the case, to unpack the case, to, to show its value and its worth and its beauty and its biblically rooted foundation. Okay, third question. Why, why focus on this now? Okay, let's say you grant the first two. Okay, Jeremy, let's say it is biblical, and let's say that it's not dangerous, but why do this now? Aren't there other things we could be doing? Why not, why not teach on an evangelism or we could talk about missions or we could talk about loving the poor? There's so many things we could talk about. Why this? Why now? Well, the, the simple answer to that question is this is what the Lord has been showing the elders and the leaders over the last two or three years. And we, and here's your blank, we trust the chief shepherd as he leads and teaches us. See, that's the way the Christian life works. The Spirit shows you something, and you do it. And the Spirit shows you something, and you do it. And over the last two or three years, the, the elders have seen again and again and again a need to strengthen and improve our current role-keeping. As I pointed out, we do have membership. It's a voting roster. And we do have all these other lists. And none of them are terribly helpful in answering the question, who are we? Who is Martinsdale Community Church? They're just not authoritative. They're not accurate. And we've had cases where that lack of accuracy has been harmful, and there are other things where, where we are, want to shepherd and do things more biblically, and we see this is a step and a help in the right direction. But the, but the bottom line is, according to James 4.17, once, once the Lord shows us something, once the Lord reveals something, some good thing for us to do, for him who knows the good thing he should do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so the Lord is, is fixing our wagon one step at a time, and he's dealing with other churches. And, and if you say, well, other churches that I know are faithful aren't doing this. I mean, after all, this church has, has functioned faithfully for, for decades upon decades without this emphasis. Well, the Lord knows when we need to learn something. The Lord knows when we need to grow and change, and we trust his leadership. And he'll, he'll get all of us there. He won't lose any of his sheep. 
He'll shepherd his churches, but this is what he's revealed to the leadership here. And to a man, every one of the elders, and we'll, we'll talk to you guys next week at the ABF, are convinced this is an important practical issue for us, for faithfulness and to function as a body. So those, those are some of the objections that I've anticipated. I'm sure there'll be more, and there'll be opportunities and a chance for you guys to ask more questions. But now I want to sort of summarize where we've come and put forward seven reasons to become a member of a local church. If, if you're sitting on the edge, if you attend, if you give of yourself but not yourself, here's seven reasons. Or you could also add seven reasons to go public about joining a church. You see, we know that in many cases, most of you have made these commitments. I want to make one point clear. Getting your name on a list does not make you a member of a church. The existence of the biblical relationships does. Being part of the body, relating to your leaders and to your brothers and sisters makes you a part of the church. A a list can only reflect that. And I know in many cases, we know in many cases, you guys are doing this. You are vital functioning members of the body. And so seven reasons to become or to go public about being part of a local church. Number one, and this is sort of a summary of the first week's message, because it's biblical, because it's biblical. And we've got to start there. We, we don't want to teach the traditions of men. We don't want to teach our opinions or what seems wise and good to us. We want to be biblical. And, and, and as I said in that, in that first week, and you can go back and listen to the message, I'll, I'll recap here, what we see over and over is record-keeping of some sort. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but listen to Acts 2, the first day of the church at Pentecost. So those who received their word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And in case there's any ambiguity, added to what? What does that mean? Go a little further down, verse 46 And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those were being saved. And and, and Luke gives numbers. 3,000 were added. How did they know it was 3,000? Somebody was keeping track. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue if, if they just sort of whoever showed up showed up? Perhaps even if for a time they tried to do that and and widows were falling through the cracks and so deacons are made and widows lists begin to appear. Because if we're going to love each other, we need to know who each other are. People will slip through the cracks. It'll happen. Sheep will wander away unnoticed and perish. And Paul rebukes the church at Corinth for going ahead and taking the Lord's Supper before everyone shows up. And of course that begs the question, how do you know when everyone shows up? Because they're self-aware. They know who they are. They know who they are. It's biblical. It's biblical. Second, why become a member of a local church? To truly function as a family and as a body. And now I'm summarizing the second message. And the biblical metaphors are much more robust and involved and visceral than merely attendance, being part of a group, being part of a community even. But a family and a body now, Jeremy Sweet, I, I saw him here a little earlier, but I guarantee if you ask him, um, there was a very significant process by which a family member was brought into the world in his home just a few days ago. And I think you would all be surprised if you came down for breakfast one morning and just some new person was sitting at your table, eating, you know, reading the newspaper, eating your cereal. Hey, who are you? Oh, I'm part of your family. 
Oh, okay. And it disappears for a month at a time. No. We recognize in families, entrance into families is a significant event, either through a birth or through an adoption. That's how families function. Now, we can be in fellowship with all sorts of people. We can have community with all sorts of people. But if we're a family, we know who we are. Does anyone here have any doubt who the members of their family are? We, we can talk to you afterwards if you do. There's help. There's help. <laughs> or the membership of a body, right? Does anyone here have any doubt about how many fingers, how many hands, how many toes they have? Bodies only function in harmony. Bodies only function together as a unity. And if we're to be that body and we're to be that family, we need to know who we are. Even just to take communion, we need to know we're all here. According to Paul, we need to. To function as a family and as a body. Third, sort of recapping Al's message now. For the safety of your souls. For the safety of your soul. Now, Paul, on his way to Jerusalem in arrest, stops and meets with the elders of the church in um, Acts chapter 20 of Ephesus. And he warns them the following. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men twisting, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease by day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Churches, churches are significant because it looks, churches look out for the souls of everyone else. As Pastor Daniel said last week, you don't run into many sheep in the wild who've gotten away from, from shepherds. They don't tend to survive very long that way. We need each other. We need each other. Now, again, this goes against the culture. America is built upon this staunch individualism. And I don't want, need anyone's help. I can do it myself, thank you. And, and maybe in work, that's a good attitude. It's up for debate. But in the church, that, that is anti the Spirit of God and His Word. We need each other. If you have somehow redefined the Christian life into something that you and the Lord can do alone by yourselves, I, I really wonder whether you understand the Christian life at all. We need each other. I need people to watch over my soul. Paul is aware there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be dangers. So he goes to those entrusted with leadership, and he says, be on your guard. Be alert. There's danger out there. We need each other. I need shepherds. I need people looking out for me. And I count those people my dearest friends who do that. Who do that. Listen to Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, what is the remedy for the danger of a Christian's heart cooling and drifting? Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The remedy to an individual Christian's heart cooling down, their love cooling down, their eyes being taken off Christ, they begin to drift. The remedy for that is a group of other believers exhorting and encouraging them day after day. A little later in Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
I need you guys to encourage my faith. I need you. I, I, I can't walk and be faithful without you guys. We need each other, and we need everything Christ has given the church. We need all the parts. They're vital. Why become a member of local church? For the safety of your soul. For the safety of your soul. Fourth, now recapping Daniel's message. Why? Why become a member of a local church? For the joy of your leaders. Now turn to that much-loved passage, Hebrews 13, 17. But I want to look at the whole thing. We tend to trip up as individualists, as Americans. We tend to trip up on the first half of the verse. I want you to focus on the second half. Hebrews 13, 17. The author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, who here wants advantage? Who here wants gain? Who here wants benefit? The author of Hebrews says one of the reasons to join a church, one of the reasons to make yourself known, hey, I'm here and I'm a sheep and I'm part of this body, it's the joy of our leaders. And I want you to practice this out. It's the first half that most Americans stumble over. Obey, submit. I don't obey anybody. It's the second half that keeps me awake at night. It's the second half that I know weighs upon the elders of this church. I mean, can you imagine? Not only am I going to have to give an account for myself, because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but I have to give an account for you. We, the leaders, have to give an account for you. And that's, that's a heavy and sober responsibility, and it's only made more difficult when there is uncertainty of, Lord, who is it that I'm going to give an account for? Can you imagine not knowing? The way, as we, as we prayerfully consider how to minister to people, what our responsibility to them is. Is, is, it, not a fair enough, is it not a fair enough turnaround that if you're to give an account to the living God for a group of people, that we know who those people are? You see how that would make our job a more joyful one and a more beneficial one for you. As Daniel said last week, the guy who's come over to help you fix your car, you don't begrudge him when he asks you to hold the wrench or pass him a screwdriver. Because you know he's serving your joy, he's serving your benefit, he's serving your good. And we can, we can make this an issue of, of, of difficulty and grumbling, or we can, we can come together and be of one mind and say, yeah, yeah, I want, to, I want to let my leaders do their job easily and with joy because I want benefit, I want gain. For the joy of your leaders. Fifth, for the building up of the church. Now, turn to Ephesians 4. This is going to be where we close the series out next week, so I'll touch on it lightly. But you want to know, you ask me, what is my driving passion personally, both for the church in general and for um, this series and membership in specific, and I would say over and over, Ephesians 4, this picture of the church working properly, this, this idealized picture of the church functioning as it ought, is so beautiful and so exciting, I just get passionate about it. I just get excited about it. And as I see our church becoming more and more like this Ephesians 4 picture, I, I, I get filled with joy and encouragement. And here, we get the end game for the church. Paul is going to talk about the resources the church has, and he's going to talk about the obstacles in the way, and he's going to talk about the goal. 
I want you to look at this. He's talking about what Christ did when he ascended. When Christ ascended into heaven, Ephesians 4, he gave the spirit, he gave spiritual gifts. Pick it up in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So he gave equipping gifted men to the church to equip everybody for the work of the ministry. Notice the work of the ministry does not belong to the clergy or to the elders or the leaders, to everybody. If you're a saint, if you're a Christian, you got ministry to do. And I'm here, and Daniel's here, and Greg Sweet's here, and the leadership of this church is here to help you and equip you to do that. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What ministry is that? For the building up the body of Christ. He says it one way. So what's the work of the ministry? The work of the ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. To, to, to what standard? Perhaps we've done this. Perhaps we crossed this line last year somehow. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Guess what? There's more ministry to be done. Amen? Amen. And then he says it negatively. What will that look like negatively? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather, how does the body mature? How does the body grow? How does the body function? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way and to the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, so how is this edification done? It's done through speaking the truth in love. What's evangelism? It's speaking the truth in love to your neighbor. What's instruction and encouragement? Speaking the truth in love to your brother and sister. What's even rebuke and correction? Speaking the truth in love to an erring brother and sister. It can all be boiled down to that. Speaking the truth in love. And it only happens when every part and every function is wor- and every joint and ligament is working in harmony together. That, that's the end game. That's the goal. Why do we need to know who we are? So we can do this. We need to be self-aware for us to know every joint's function. We're, we're working like that body. We're functioning like that family. It will not happen haphazardly or casually. But this, this is the goal. This is what gets me excited, is this picture of a growing, being purified, being sanctified church, living out, incarnating this body of Christ, this family and household of God, for building up the church. Six, for the advance of the gospel. And I'll ask you to turn to Acts 5. For the advance of the gospel. See, I believe the Bible teaches that how we function as a church, with our unity, will directly impact the gospel going out to the nations. So if you ask, why teach this? Why not do a series on evangelism or a series on missions? Or We are. In a roundabout way, we are. Acts chapter 5. See, our temptation is to think that, that the freer we are and the, the, the less structure we have, the more appealing the church will be to the unbeliever. 
That was the, the lie behind the entire seeker-sensitive movement. I want you to see the anti-seeker-sensitive church in Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira have just been struck dead by God in a church service. Right? Church is gathering to worship, and news gets out. News gets out. Two people, do you hear this? Two people were struck dead in a church service because they lied to Peter and the Holy Spirit. <gasps> now look at, look at verse 12. Well, just, just to show you it's connected, go back to verse 11. So I'm not skipping down paragraphs. Oh, 10. Immediately she... F- <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Now you have some idea what Daniel has to go through every week. Um, immediately, this is Sapphira, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the peoples by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them. I think that's understandable, right? (laughs) If you heard you make a misstep at this church service, you get struck dead, you're going to think twice before going. (laughs) That's not the, the, the surprising feature. But all the people held them in high esteem. Somehow they didn't get a reputation for being legalistic just because sin was dealt with severely, just because there were black and white lines They still had a good reputation among the people. They weren't judgmental or hateful or legalistic. And then look at what amazingly is is said next. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. So before two people got struck dead in church, were more people coming to Christ, or was it after two people got struck dead in church? that more people became Christians. The text is clear. More, after. People heard this, and the result was there was a clear distinction. The church was clearly singled out. People knew who the church was. They knew who it wasn't. And in that context, they still were esteemed highly because they were still loving and serving and, and honoring God. And yet in that context, rather than being repelled and driven away, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. We think of we think of Jesus' prayer in John 17, and he prays first for himself, and then he, then he prays for his disciples, and then he says, I pray not only for those, but for those who will believe through their message. He's praying for us. And, and what is his prayer? That we be one, that we be unified. To what end? John 17, 23. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Our unity, our functioning as a family, is precisely one of the things the Lord will use to convince the world of who his son is and to bring people to Christ. I said in my message a few weeks ago, no one is pressed with, I love you, but I don't like you. No one's impressed by that. But when they see people loving each other, serving each other, across racial boundaries, across economic boundaries, across educational boundaries, Then they might say what they said at the early church. See how they love each other. Something must be going on here. See how they take care of each other. And again, all that is predicated on a knowledge of who we are. The advance of the gospel. 
And finally, for the glory of God. And I think this kind of goes without saying, but the real challenge for us with these issues is will I be concerned first and foremost with protecting myself, my perceived rights, guarding myself from anyone treading on me, or will I first and foremost care about the things of God, the things he's passionate about? You know, we like to tell people that, you know, Jesus died for you and he would have died for you if you're the only person on the earth. And there might be some truth to that, but Ephesians 5 said Jesus died for the church, his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is very passionate about his church. And he's promised that his church will be the ones who will prevail against the very gates of hell. God is passionate about his people, his church. So much of the New Testament given to how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to order ourselves. And if we begin to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about, we'll be less concerned about, but, but I, I feel less safe. Or I might, if people know that I've made a commitment, they might expect something of me. And, and, and we have nothing to be afraid of because everything God gives us is good. Everything God gives us is good. We should be more concerned about the glory of God than, than guarding and protecting ourselves in fear. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 30, 31, whether we eat or drink, we should do all things for the glory of the Lord. And we've seen in passages like Acts 4.27 how the Lord gets glory when his body functions properly. They are all together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. So I know this is a brief message. I know that... Um, as, as much as you may be amazed that we've gone on for six weeks about membership, we, we could say much more. But I'd encourage you, I'd plead with you to think through these things. Again, don't, don't believe me as an authority. Don't take my word for it, but search the scriptures. See if these things are so. Be Bereans. Don't simply knee-jerk to fear, but, but work through it. Ask questions. Show up next week to our joint ABF and ask questions of the elders. It's our desire that we be that, that church building itself up in love, speaking the truth to itself in love. I'm going I'm to call the worship team up for our final song. And as they come up, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for each other. We thank you that you have not left us alone. You have not left us orphans. You've given us your spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. You've given us your word by which you guide and direct our steps. And you have given us your church. You've given us each other. You've given us shepherds and brothers and sisters to watch over us. You have given us concrete people with which to demonstrate and live out your love. And we get the privilege of being your body on earth. We get the, the responsibility of, of being your advanced guard of your kingdom, of being your embassy in the dark world. Lord, give us the grace and the faith this biblical sight to, to not be afraid, but to, to embrace being more fully the church, that we might live these truths out, that we might glorify you, that more might be won to your name and for our joy and benefit. In Jesus' name, amen.